Well, good morning. I hope everybody is doing well. Looking forward to God's study this morning. <coughs> we have quite a few verses to get through this morning, and so we'll jump right into God's word. We'll let uh, Rod's prayer be this morning's prayer for God's word. As you can see from the slide up right now, we are in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 31. How many of you guys were here last week? Yeah. If you were here, you know that we were treated to an excellent uh, class by Corbett. If you were not here, I highly encourage you to listen to it. Corbett did a wonderful job in teaching about what we came to know as actually God's plan for marriage, not, not divorce, but God's plan for marriage. Our lesson this morning <coughs> is right on the heels of what Corbett taught last week. We are going to look at this morning blessing, with Jesus blesses the little children and the rich young ruler. So by way of introduction... I'd like to just say a few brief statements. One, I'd like to remind us about, <coughs> excuse me, what's going on so that we're familiar with the text. At this point, Jesus' Galilean ministry has ended. That occurred at the end of chapter 9, beginning of chapter 10. And as a result, Jesus sets forth on a path to Jerusalem. He is on his way to his impending death. As he is on his way to Jerusalem, he travels to two places, Judea and a place beyond the Jordan, chapter 10, verse 1, tells us. That place beyond the Jordan is a place known as Perea, that's where Jesus is ministering as we read our lesson this morning. He is in Perea. And as you can see from the slide, he has left Nazareth, the, the Galilean region. He's headed south. But what's interesting about Perea is that that's the route, Corbin mentioned this last week, that's the route the Jewish people would take in order to avoid having to go through Samaria. So they veer off course go through Perea into Judea and Jerusalem. That's what Jesus is currently doing. So that is what's going on. Now, regarding our <coughs> lesson, I'd like to mention just a few quick things. First, please understand that the underlying theme of the lesson today is eternity. Eternity is in view as we study God's word this morning. Our lesson will include three central points that all have to do with eternity. These points play out in two very well-known scenes that undoubtedly, if you've been here for any amount of time, you have heard before. And as I just mentioned them, the first one is Jesus blessing the little children, and the second one is the rich young ruler. So let's... Jump into our first point this morning. Blessing the little children. Read with me verses 13 through 16. And they were bringing to him. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. <coughs> but the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. So point number one for your outline, an ungodly rebuke. That takes place in verse 13. The account that we just read here in verses 13 through 16 is found in all three synoptic gospels. And though it's brief, it's, it's difficult to try to overstate the importance 
of this account of Jesus blessing the little children. Children are brought to Jesus. We're told that he might touch them. We don't know about their physical condition. We don't know if their health was good or if they're being brought to Jesus because they're sick and, and people, parents want healing. We're not given that detail. We just are told that people are bringing children to Jesus that he might bless them. The word in verse 13, rebuke, is a very, very strong word that Mark uses. It, it means in the Greek to censure, to reprimand. How many of us have been reprimanded before? Yeah, really? You guys got to do some more bad stuff, man, to get reprimanded. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do bad stuff. But I if you've ever been reprimanded, you know what that is like. It's not a good feeling. That is what that word means. The, the disciples, in effect, were reprimanding those who were bringing the children to Jesus to be blessed. Plainly put, they were verbally lashing out at them, not allowing the children to go to Jesus. The disciples' action here of rebuking those that were bringing the children to Jesus is, is likely due to a prevalent Jewish ideal on children. It has to do with how Jewish people view children in Jesus' day. Now, it's important to make this distinction before we continue. The, the typical word, the normal word in the Greek for children is paidia, paidia. But Luke, in his account of this blessing of the children, uses the Greek word brephos, brephos, for children. And this is important because that word brephos means infants. It means babies. It even refers sometimes to those unborn. So what's in view here are not 8-year-olds or 12-year-olds or anything like that. No, we're talking about babies, newborns, infants. That is who the disciples are reprimanding. That is who they are rejecting and lashing out at. Now, why? Why are they doing this? They're, they're doing this, like I just mentioned, because of a Jewish ideal on children. Their, their society, children in Jewish society really found their worth, their position through an adult male. Typically, it was their father. But, but that's it. Like women, babies were marginalized, thought of as not very important. This is because value in Jewish society was tied to either your physical ability or your mental ability. And when you're a baby, well, you don't have either. So there just wasn't much worth given to babies. No physical or mental ability meant no value in the day of Jesus. And it is this societal thought that permeates the actions of the disciples as they are rejecting the children from coming to Jesus. Well, this ungodly rebuke leads us to subpoint number two in our outline, uh, a, a godly demand. This is... Uh, 14 verses 14 and 15. We're told in verse 14 that upon seeing uh, the actions of his disciples, Jesus becomes indignant, verse 14 says. That's, that's an equally strong word, like rebuke, indignant, is a very strong word that Mark uses. Th the Greek definition of that word indignant means to become angry. To, to experience hot anger because of an injustice. That's exactly what Jesus sees is occurring, and he becomes angry, he becomes indignant at what his disciples are doing. Jesus' anger is evident in his godly demand. 
He says two things in this demand in verse uh, 14. He says, permit and do not hinder. Those are the things. That's the, that's the godly demand. Permit and do not hinder. That word permit has the, the sentiment of ceasing an action to allow another. Stopping one thing, start doing another. And hinder is to deny or refuse. So if I were to paraphrase what, what Jesus is telling his disciples when he says, permit and do not hinder, he's saying, stop what you're doing. That's what he's telling them. Stop what you're doing. Stop denying. Stop refusing them. And leave them alone to come to me. A question arises here that is a natural one, and I think it's fair to be asked, why? Why, why permit the children to come to him? Why no longer hinder them? Verse 14c, that last part of verse 14 and 15 Tell us why. Look at those verses with me again, if you would. Last part of 14. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. 15. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Why? Because eternity hinges on this lesson for the disciples and everyone else watching What's going on? Because we're told that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Who? The babies. The babies. Then he repeats it through repetition. You know it's important. You know that what he's saying is important. Verse 15. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all says the same thing differently. It is important what he's saying. He wants his disciples to understand what he is doing. Jesus' refusal to follow societal norms for the sake of following societal norms is noteworthy here. I want you to, I want you to catch that. The disciples may have been guilty of following the norm and, and doing what the crowd did in terms of their thought process about children, but not Jesus. Jesus doesn't just go with the flow for the sake of going with the flow. He refused to see children in an ungodly and worthless manner. His godly demand leads to our next subpoint in our lesson which is a godly blessing, a godly blessing. Verse 16, read verse 16 with me. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Jesus' demand is on honored, his godly demand of, of permitting and, and not hindering is, is honored. And, and we see in verse 16, that he is now blessing the children. And he does two important things in verse 16 that I want you guys to note. This, this godly blessing in verse 16 is marked by, one, taking the babies in his arms, and two, blessing them. He takes, he takes them in his arms, we're told, and he blesses them. Now, this, this blessing ritual would have been a ritual that that Jewish people were really familiar with and we ought to be too remember remember in the old testament fathers would bless their children often uh, Isaac and Jacob come to mind and then Jacob and his grandsons come to mind this idea of, of blessing the next generation, of, of passing on the blessing, was a ritual that was very familiar to the Jewish people. But this godly blessing that we read of in verse 16 is unlike any other blessing. It's not a human blessing. 
There is no greater blessing than the blessing we read of in verse 16 here. It is a blessing of a holy God embracing the weak, powerless sinner. That's the picture of verse 16. Verse 16 plays out a beautiful and tangible picture of Christ's embrace of the powerless. It plays out an unconditional love for those that are thought of as worthless by society, marginalized by society. Those in need, those that have nothing to offer, those Christ embraces. This picture leads us to our final subpoint in this part of the outline, our takeaway. What, what are we to take away from, from Jesus blessing the children? Well, to be honest, there are many takeaways that we can glean from this passage of Scripture. I've, I've picked three of them, and I'll give them to you. Uh, again, so much can be gleaned, but these have stood out to me this week as I have studied God's Word on this passage. The first is having to do with verse 16. One of the takeaways that should be present in our life every single day is that our life should be full of praise and thankfulness to a God that is merciful enough to embrace me and bless me, an undeserving sinner. It's true as I stand here before you this morning, I am a sinner, and, and so are you. And I, I don't mean that offensively. I think everybody knows that. If you don't, you're welcome. You know it now. But we know we're sinners. We know we have nothing to offer and so why would the God of this, the, the God that created this world, why would the holy one true God care? And more than that, why would he care enough to lovingly embrace us as Jesus embraced the poor and powerless babies? There, there, there simply is no explanation outside of God's unconditional love for us. And because of that, our life should be marked by praise and thankfulness daily. The second point that I think we should take away from this section of Scripture is that eternity with God is for the helpless and the powerless, not the self-sufficient. Eternity with God is for the helpless and powerless, not the self-sufficient. This is the point that Jesus makes in verse 14c and 15. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. Babies, when you think of them, they can do nothing. How many of us have had the wonderful joy of having a baby before yeah some of you guys raised your hand like this like i yeah wasn't really joyful and and look i will i will yes i will admit that it wasn't joyful i remember our firstborn micah uh the the first time that well first of all maggie and i got into a little bit of a tiff on the way home because we couldn't figure out the seat you know and we're freaking out and 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 so we got him home safe and sound and I remember one night we were so tired we were so tired and he decides to wake up at 3 a.m. and I got up I picked him up Maggie had had nursed him already I got up I picked him up and I fell asleep <laughs> I fell asleep with him in my lap I was so tired and he did too and I woke up in in great fear that I had killed Micah he was sound asleep uh, it is a joy unlike any other to be blessed by a baby. It is difficult at times, but 
it is certainly a joy. But when you think of babies, you think of not what they can do, but what they can't do. Not how they can take care of themselves, but how they can't take care of themselves in any area of life. They're helpless. They're utterly dependent on their parents. They are completely powerless. And this is the point that Jesus is making here. Many people think that in verses 14 and 15, Jesus was pointing to the fact that, that we should emulate their innocence, baby's innocence, or, or the faith, but that doesn't fit. They, they, don't, they don't have that capacity yet. No, he was pointing to their helplessness, and he's saying kingdom, the kingdom of God, eternity, is with those who, like powerless babes, accept their position before a holy God. For those who come before a holy God and know that they are in need of that holy God, like a powerless, utterly dependent baby, we should run to Christ and his embracing arms. That is who eternity is reserved for. And finally, the third point, guarding against the infectious. This is the uh, third takeaway that I was dwelling on, guarding against the infectious ungodliness of world thinking. We have to guard against the infectious ungodliness of worldly thinking. What do I mean by that? You know, the disciples by this point, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. It's at the end of his ministry. They, they really should have known better. And yet, what do they find themselves doing in verse 13? They find themselves doing something that God is utterly displeased with. That, that he becomes indignant to. And, and they're doing that because they had been infected by, by society's thought process, by, by society's norms. The world's thinking had influenced them to the point, consider this, to the point that they find themselves working against their Savior. That's, a, that's what unworldly thinking does, isn't it? Oftentimes, it'll put even the believer in a position where they are fighting against God himself. So we have to guard against that. It's easy to pick on the disciples, but the question is pertinent for us this morning. And I would encourage all of us to ask ourselves that question, where am I? Where have I been infected by worldly thinking if I have been? Search your heart. Search your life. Lest we find ourselves, because of that infection, fighting against our very own creator. Well, we move on to the second point in our outline and that is the rich young ruler verses 17 through 22 read uh 17 through 21 with me as he was setting out on a journey a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him good teacher what shall i do to inherit eternal life jesus said to him why do you call me good no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. The second point is marked by the first subpoint, a genuine question in verses 17 through 21. In verse 17, we're told <clears throat> that as Jesus is setting out on a journey, a man is introduced to the reader of Mark. This man is nameless, but Matthew, in his parallel account, tells us that he was young. And Luke, in his parallel account, 
tells us that he was a ruler of a synagogue, a synagogue ruler. So he was young, he had a position, he was important, he had influence, and he was wealthy, he was rich. In terms of climbing the, the Jewish corporate ladder, this is the guy you want to emulate. He was young. This position of synagogue ruler didn't go to young men. There was something special about him, that he became a synagogue ruler at a young age, and he was rich. Running, kneeling, and asking are three verbs used to describe this man in verse 17. He ran to and kneeled before Jesus. This is interesting because it's atypical. Jewish men, as a general rule, didn't run anywhere. They weren't going to be pressured into anything. But it's, it's atypical not only because of that. It, it's atypical because he's a ruler. He's a somebody. He has a position. He has influence. He has money. And it was also atypical because of who he's running to. He's running to Jesus. So one, you don't run. And two, you certainly don't run to Jesus. Asking a question would have also been looked on as unacceptable. And again, not only the fact of looking, uh, asking, a, uh, asking a question, but who he was asking the question of was unacceptable. And because of that, a question arises that is a natural question to ask. Why would a young, rich ruler risk what he has to ask Jesus a question? Why would he risk his position and his power and his wealth? Well, the question he asks Jesus gives us insight into the question we are asking. Why did he do that? Look at the question that he asks in uh, verse 17. He starts off by saying, good teacher. And this is an important phrase. In fact, it's not too much to say that this phrase is, is the key phrase of this entire section. This seemingly innocent address of Jesus really serves as the crux of this young man's problem, even though we don't see it yet. It'll be developed in just a bit. He says, good teacher. And now, notice the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, how many of you guys know that if you're asking a question, it's because you're likely doubting? All of his power and his influence and his wealth and, and everything he has, everything he's accomplished, hasn't been able to give him the security, the comfort, the assurance of eternal life. And consequently, he sees an opportunity to talk to Jesus. He's heard of him undoubtedly, and he takes it, and he runs toward him. So it becomes evident that he's willing to risk everything he has because he's unsure of his position in eternity. He doesn't think he has eternal life. Now, it's, it, it should be noted that his coming to Jesus, his willingness to risk his position, and the power that he had can certainly be counted as a genuine act. I, I don't think this young man was faking anything. I think he genuinely ran to Jesus. I think he genuinely bowed before him. I think he genuinely asked the question. The sad part of, of being genuine is that we can genuinely end up in hell also. Sadly, being genuine is, is not enough before a holy God. But it should be noted that, that he does come to Jesus and he is actually seeking, he is actually looking for an answer. Jesus provides uh, the answer in verse Verses 18 and 19. Now the first answer in verse 18 strikes at the heart of, of this man's use and understanding of that word good. A few moments ago, remember I said that was really the crux of his issue. 
the crux of his problem. While the man's question does have a degree of genuineness, Jesus' question here in verse 18 is a piercing question. And it has to be because Jesus is now dealing with this man's heart. In the question, in verse 18, Jesus raises the standard of defining good to that of God and not man. This man was using the standard of good relatively speaking. He used it loosely. That's why Jesus asks him, why are you calling me good? We've never met. You don't know me. Why are you calling me good? Because he was flippant. This rich young ruler was flippant about the use of that word good because he thought everybody was good. He was good. Jesus was good. Everybody was good. As you think about that, it's strikingly similar to this world's thought on the very same issue, isn't it? Everybody is good. And listen, I'll even listen to you about your Jesus. Just don't call me a sinner. Just don't say that I'm bad because I'm good. So Jesus has to raise that standard of good to that of God's standard. When, when good is relative to other humans, we have a tendency of coming out okay, right? Especially because, conveniently, we're going to pick the worst ones. So we have a tendency of coming out okay. But when compared to a, 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 when, when compared to a holy God, or when, when we use God's standard to define that word good, the only result is, as Paul said in Romans 3, 10, and 11, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. We are all guilty of being evil. That is the truth. The second answer in verse 19 strikes at the heart of this man's self-reliance. And by the way, if you wonder, Edwin, I, I, I see the... I see how he's guilty in the question in verse 18. I, I don't see self-reliance. Give it, give it just a minute. Give it just a minute. You'll see it. It's, it's coming up, I promise. But the fact that this young man was Jewish and a synagogue ruler means that he would have been very familiar with the Torah, with God's word in the Old Testament. Jesus plays on that knowledge that he has in asking him the second question in verse 19, because he references the Ten Commandments, and, and even more specifically, the second part of the Ten Commandments. That part of the Ten Commandments is usually known as the Decalogue. So Jesus uses the Decalogue of the Ten Commandments in his question. It is interesting, isn't it, that Jesus would, would use the law here? Don't, don't answer me, but... Think about this. How would you have answered him? Or how would you answer anybody running up to you, not kneeling, because, you know, that would be a little weird, but running up to you and saying, how do I obtain eternal life? How would you have answered that question? How would you answer that question? I think that most of us probably would have gone to the gospel. We probably would have started at the gospel, and, and that's not wrong. That's not wrong, but, but Jesus starts with the Old Testament. He's, he starts with the law for a specific purpose. It, it's because the law serves as a condemning mirror to all of us. It can't save, Paul said, but, but it does condemn us because it shows us our sin. Paul said that no one is justified by the law because through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's his whole point. It, it's powerless to save, but it's good because it points out that we fall short of God's standard. This young man needed the law so that he could see his own sin. And sometimes in witnessing to people, we need to start with the law. We need to start with the bad news before getting to the good news. 
He needed the law so that he could see his own sin. Jesus' point is sadly lost on this young man. In verse 20, he tells Jesus that he's a keeper of the law, not a breaker of it. You got to love that answer. Now, listen, I will freely admit to you that as I read this, and I read this uh, numerous times, uh, I I am a sinner. I, I admit that to everybody. And as I read his response in verse 20, I sinned <laughs> because I thought I would not have given this man love. That would not have been my reaction. It would have been a very different reaction. And the reality is that you probably would not have given this man love either. But another reality in the occurrence of verse 20 is that we ought to be thankful We ought to be thankful for the love displayed by Jesus toward this young man. Verse 21, excuse me, not verse 20. It is the reaction of the one sent to save that which was lost. And that should cause thankfulness in our hearts. Now, Jesus' love for this man isn't because of his statement not because of his statement. Jesus' love for this man, it comes from compassion because he senses that this man is genuinely seeking, but he can't seem to get out of his own way. Notice also that Jesus doesn't let him off the hook simply because he loves him. Instead, he presses the issue to expose the young man's heart. And he does so by using the greatest commandment of all. And if you don't know what the greatest commandment of all is, it is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Salvation is at this young man's door. Think about this, please. Salvation is at this young man's door. And he extends the offer of a lifetime. You want to talk about offers of a lifetime? It's not a job offer. It's not a school offer. This is the offer of a lifetime. Salvation himself is staring this young man in the eyes and he makes an offer. He makes an offer. What's what's the offer? The offer is to exchange temporal and fleeting and earthly possessions for treasures in heaven. That's the author, but that that offer leads us to the second point in this section of the outline, which is a grievous response. Read verse 22 with me. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Just like it's difficult to give uh, verse 21 its due justice, it's equally as difficult to give verse 22 its due justice. Verse 22 tells us that the young man was saddened by Jesus' words and he he went away. That word saddened there is devastated. He was devastated. And verse 22 also tells us that he's devastated. He's saddened because he owned much property. Think about what that means. Flesh that out a little bit. It's not simply the physical property that devastates this young man. I think instead, what devastates this young man is the realization he comes to when Jesus uses the greatest command ever given to reveal this young man, to this young man, his own heart. The moment this young man resolved in his heart that he was going to reject Jesus' offer, he realized about himself that he was going to say no to salvation himself. He realized at that very point that he was going to choose temporal and fleeting wealth over treasures in heaven. And at that moment, he gets a sense for just how evil He really is. I think that's what devastated him. And just like that, he goes from having had 
the greatest offer anyone has ever had to walking away from it. What a tragedy, and I'll talk more about this in, in the conclusion in just a little bit, but please understand that eternity with God, salvation and eternity with God cannot be, will not be for the self-reliant, for the self-righteous. We move to our third and final point this morning, the disciples' lesson, verses 23 through 31. Read uh, 23 through 27 with me, please, as we look at our first subpoint, a hard entry. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with people, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. On the heels of the experience with the rich young ruler, Jesus immediately turns to his disciples, and he continues on the topic of eternity, and he does so by teaching them a brief lesson in verses 23 through 31. This brief lesson is broken down into three subpoints. You're looking at the first subpoint there, a hard entry. What does that mean? It means that in these verses, Jesus is telling his own disciples that eternity with God, life with God, salvation, in fact, has a hard entry. It has a hard entry. In verse 23, he tells them, that it is a hard entry for the wealthy. In verse 24, he changes things up just a tad and says it's hard, period. Eternity with God is hard, period. But a question fits here, and it is, well, well just how hard, Jesus? Just how hard is it to gain eternity with God? Verse 25 tells us just how hard. In this verse, Jesus tells his disciples how hard it is to gain entry into eternity with God by using a saying that was very, very popular in his day. He says in 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now listen, you guys know me by now, and I have... No qualms about appearing dumb before you guys because, frankly, that's mostly what I do. I do, I, I appear dumb. But the, the, when I was a kid, I'll tell you this in relation to, to the slide I'm about to show you. Uh, I, would, I would look at a sign all the time. And it's, it's, it's a sign. It's not an appropriate sign. But I'm telling you this to just point to my inability. You guys ever seen that sign? Uh, on, on liquors or, or, or stores where it says wine and beer. Anybody ever seen that? Wine and beer? Yeah, that's okay. Don't get offended. I said beer. It's all right. But it, <laughs> wine and beer, right? Okay, I thought until I was about eight or nine that the word wine was weenie. And so I thought, why do they say weenie and beer? That doesn't make any sense. And I blurted it out one day in public uh, to a guy who was extremely kind, and he just kind of chuckled, and he said, that, that word is wine. It's not weenie. Why do I say that? Because that thought process of mine, my inability, <laughs> uh, rings true in verse 25 also. Now, I don't want anybody to indict themselves, but when I think of a camel going through the eye of a needle, I literally think of a camel going through the eye of a needle, and I think, well, how are you going to do that? That doesn't make any sense. I think that's the point that Jesus is making. That's exactly the point that he's making. Some commentators actually thought that, that this had to do with a, a gate, a smaller gate in the temple. And, and that if, if a camel uh, would kneel down, they would fit through 
that, that uh, gate in the temple. The problem with that thought is that just off to the right, there's an enormous gate that a camel can just walk right through. So that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But what Jesus is saying here with this saying is it's impossible. You want to know how hard it is? You want to know how hard it is to gain eternity with God? It's impossible. It's like trying to get a camel through the eye of a needle. It's impossible. Upon hearing this, in verse 26, the disciples react in astonishment. And they ask, they ask the right question. In fact, they ask the question that the rich young ruler should have asked, but he didn't. When confronted with the impossible requirements for entry into eternity, they realize they're not getting in either. They realize that what Jesus is preaching applies to them also. They don't meet God's requirements. And so in verse 27, Jesus mentions two things. He mentions people and he mentions God. And notice how he associates the impossibility of gaining eternity with man. But it becomes possible to attain eternity with God. The lesson here is clear, no doubt. Relying on ourselves, on our achievements, on our wealth, our effort to get into eternity only ensures the impossibility of ever getting in. Because we stand condemned before a holy God. But turning from ourselves, turning from what we are, and running to God, running to the embracing arms of Christ means that we gain eternity with God. Not through us, but through him. The second lesson on eternity that Jesus gives his disciples comes in verse 28 a high cost second sub point for you verse 28 peter began to say to him behold we have left everything and followed you verse 28 jesus says that in addition to eternity's hard entry eternity has a high cost it will come at a high cost. I felt bad for Peter as he says this in verse 28 because I, I can understand the desperation that caused him to blurt this out. I mean, it has nothing to do with anything Jesus is teaching right now. But he just blurts it. We've left everything, Lord. I can understand. Consider, consider his position and the position of the other disciples as they start to realize their true position before a holy God and they also start to think, the guy preaching this to us is the guy we have left everything for. The guy we dropped our fishing nets for. The guy we walked away from our tax tables for. The guy we left our dad on the boat for is now preaching that we're not good enough. I can certainly understand Peter's desperation and why he would blurt that out but the response that jesus gives comes by way of our third sub point and it is a higher reward verses 29 through 31 understand please that eternity with god comes hard it comes at a high price what what will it cost us it will cost us everything like Peter, it will cost us everything. Everything we have, everything we are. It will cost us everything to gain eternity with God. But notice the words of Jesus in verses 29 through 31. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms. Notice this, along with persecutions. In the, and in the age to come, notice the high reward, 
eternal life. Eternity is hard to come by. Eternity with God is hard to come by. It has a high cost, but it also has a high reward. It has a high reward. Jesus reassures Peter that the earthly price of admission that Peter has paid for gaining entry into eternity with God is well worth it. And, and you need to know that, and I need to know that this morning. Whatever eternity with God has cost you up to now and whatever it will cost you in the future, relationships, money, position, understand that the price is well worth the admission. There is no greater good in conclusion there's no greater good, no greater experience than to gain eternity with God. Imagine, if you can, for just a brief moment, the joy that will be inexpressible when our eyes finally see our Lord and our faith is confirmed. Imagine that. But in order to do that, I'd like to encourage all of us I pray that we remember the lessons that we have learned here this morning and we realize that gaining entry into eternity with God is for the helpless and the powerless, those who recognize that they are helpless and powerless before a holy God, those who refuse to believe the lies of self-reliance and self-righteousness, those who recognize the impossibility of self-contribution towards eternity with God and those who render everything to God because it is worth it. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your mercy and your goodness and your word. I do pray for us, Lord, that you would strengthen us as we go to uh, the next service. Help Tom, Lord, strengthen him as he brings your word to us. Strengthen us this week, Lord. Help us to, to live in your word to dwell on your word, to be strengthened by it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.